Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. It's raining outside, isn't it? Yes. Yes, extra heaven credit because you're here in the rain. Um, I think so. And I'm, I'm thinking it's likely that some people didn't want to brave it. I know. The drainage on some of these roads is bad. It's bad. All right, let's open with a prayer and we'll kick off. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, on this rainy morning, we give thanks that the rain cleanses the earth, waters all the plants and flowers around us, and keeps us even more grateful of the sunshine. We ask you to bless our hearts and minds today that we may be open to the word that you would share with us, that it may inspire us to do work that we may not have even known we could do to help extend your kingdom here on earth. Be a healing touch to those that we hold in our hearts and minds who need it most. Be present to those who are lonely. Be a hope to those who are sad. And may your peace touch all of us as we go our way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we have chapter 6 of Acts, and we're getting into some of the good stories. Chapter 7 is actually kind of really where the story, I think, takes off. And so today we're going to, in essence, prepare ourselves for what chapter 7 is really where the church shifts in a significant way. And so today we're going to prepare for that shift next week. And in chapter 6, we really only have two big sections— and so we may, like we did a couple weeks ago, have a bit more time for some Q&A at the end of this. And so kind of prepare yourself if there's a question that you've been wondering. Or um, I didn't receive any questions last week um, in writing. And so just a reminder that if you've got any, leave those on those communication cards and we'll get to them um, the following week. So in chapter 6, we've got two sections. First, the selection of the seven leaders. And then the second section focuses on Stephen and his arrest. Let's talk about a little bit of context before we get into the details of this first section. The early Christian community is starting really quickly. Jesus is walking around teaching, healing, preaching, and the followers that gather around him remain relatively finite. He has those moments where he's got 5,000 people around him learning. But when you talk about the people who are changing their lives to follow him, it remains a relatively small group during his lifetime. Once he's gone and the apostles begin to tell the story of Jesus, the Spirit empowers them to really multiply the church fast. And so there are lots of people coming into the community so much faster than they may have ever dreamed. At this point, and as we heard last week, people are leaving their homes, selling all of their stuff, and pooling their resources together into a new community. I want to note, because no one's asked, and I think it's interesting, um, but just to note, we're not talking about some sort of odd political system within this community. What they're doing is they're reframing the way that communities function. And so that's what I want to start with today, is just lifting up how Judaism in particular, but really how all of those ancient cultures functioned. It was very common 
in any ancient culture that there was a high level of responsibility to the entire community. The idea of individualism is something that's very modern. Individualism within religious structures really starts with Christianity. And so up to this point, individualistic ideas were not prevalent. Instead, it was all communal. People took care of their people. The religious structures of the day, especially in Judaism, meant that no one really fell through the cracks. There was a, what we might call a social safety net today, was not a social safety net. It was a cultural safety net. People were cared for, people were protected and defended, especially those who were most vulnerable. And a great example of this would be, say, a widow. Right? We all know in the ancient world that it was uncommon that women were able to own property or establish themselves in some way that would allow them to remain secure without their husband. The social structure within or the cultural structure within Judaism provided a safety net for women who lost their husbands. They were either cared for by their husband's brothers or they were cared for by their sons. They were not let go. Widows in particular were vulnerable, and so there was an explicit structure that maintained security for the most vulnerable. We see occasionally that there are people who are kind of on the outside of the community if they are sick or somehow um, hurt. That is unfortunately just a misunderstanding of what illness meant. Um, at that time, illness meant some kind of righteous judgment. And so people were, in essence, separating themselves from the sick because the sick were somehow doing something wrong, right? If you were a leper, that was not an accident. You were a leper because you've done something wrong. Now, we know that's not true, but that was the belief. So there's a special category of people who were ill. But broadly speaking, those who were not wealthy or who were perhaps without a husband to care for them were taken in by the community. You lived with multiple generations of family under one roof. You took care of people who may not be able to work because they were somehow injured. That structure provided a very high level of security so that people were able to commit themselves to a particular way of life for their entire life. Judaism is a cultural as much as a religious identity, right? How many of us know people who say they're Jewish when they have no connection to a faith community? It does double duty. And so the cultural identity was something that was shared with a lot of other cultures. It's not just Judaism. Um, if we think of perhaps old world families that you know, um, particularly say immigrant families who would have come to the U.S., many times you would see that immigrant families would have three or four generations of people living under the same roof because the values of the culture were such that you took care of your people. That's important for us to understand because what's shifting in the early Christian community is in essence the destabilization of that culture of care. Christianity becomes a religion of choice. It's not a religion of culture. 
People can be Christian because they choose to be. And especially in the early church, there was no cultural Christianity. It hadn't existed. It was brand new. There were individuals who were making the choice to follow Jesus, and when they made that choice, they were choosing to walk away from a culture that was designed to care for every person. And they're beginning to form a new family, so to speak, under the umbrella of Christian belief. That sounds very nice, except it very quickly provided a massive organizational challenge for a group of people who were not used to having to think about that stuff. You didn't really take, you didn't really worry about taking care of people who weren't your people because someone else was responsible for taking care of them. And that wasn't a perfect system, but that mostly covered up most people. Now what we see in the beginning of chapter six is that there are individuals that show up in this Christian community who don't have anyone to take care of them. They've walked away from their people, so to speak. They've redefined their people. No longer blood relatives, perhaps no longer cultural or racial relatives. This is a new community unified by faith in Christ. And for some people, they did it on their own. We, as a... <laughs> Spirit's moving doors over here. We... As modern Christians, understand how this really works. We know people who make a choice to follow Christ. But we also sort of get the idea of cultural faith, too. Many of us, if not most of us in this room, were indoctrinated Christians, right? We may have, and I hope we did, at some point in our young adult life or maybe in our adult life, made an intentional decision to live this way of life. But up to that point, we still were likely considered Christian because we sort of grew up in it, right? By a show of hands, who wasn't taken to church as a child? Excellent. That's two big hands. That's, that is a brilliant sort of identity. It's unusual. And by the way, I find it inspirational. Um, there are adults that I have worked with throughout the years who come to the Episcopal Church, and especially because we baptize kids as babies, mostly, um, or at least as really young kids. When an adult shows up who hasn't been baptized, they're almost embarrassed about it. And when I get an opportunity to talk with an adult who hasn't been baptized but wants to, the first thing I say to them is there is nothing, nothing better than seeing an adult get baptized to me. I don't know that there's another thing that we do that is as profoundly impactful personally to me than watching an adult go through that. I wish we, I don't disagree with infant baptism, but I kind of wish we had that moment again as an adult. And confirmation's a great moment um, when especially our teens may make that profession or adults make that profession. And as good as it is, seeing the water's even better. And so this, this is a good thing that we do um, when we bring someone in to our community who may not have been raised up in it. But it's still rare. For most of us, we have that indoctrination. And People go away from it with the hopes that they come back to it. 
And that's a healthy thing, because I think that, at least if I can speak as a parent who has yet to have adult children, um, I would like for them to know that they made this decision well, that they tried some other things and they landed here with intentionality. That I think makes it even better. And so we get, I think, both the cultural religious identity and also the individual choice. We have this weird place right now in our, in our history where we almost have both, and many people actually have both. But at the time that this is being written in the story that we see in chapter 6, there is no cultural Christianity. And as they step into this new community, they've got to figure out how to take care of the people who would have been cared for in another way, but who are now being disowned because they've cho chosen to follow Christ. Does that idea make sense before we jump into chapter 6? Brilliant. Very early on in chapter 6, like verse 1, if you look at chapter 6, verse 1, we see that it's written, during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, right? Community's grown fast. The Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. What is happening in that verse is just what we've named. There are vulnerable people showing up to be part of this community who would have otherwise been taken care of, and now they're not. And the apostles, bless their hearts, are teaching and speaking and praying, and they're not taking care of the daily needs of some of these people. And so the problem in this passage is going to be solved by raising up a new tier of leaders. These leaders are charged first and foremost with being in charge of caregiving, right? They're going to be making sure that the needs of the people are met. These seven people chosen are for, in our tradition, the historic first deacons. Deacon literally means servant. In the Episcopal Church, or the Anglican tradition, deacons have, a, um, have an ordained identity. That is unusual. In many other traditions, and you likely know them, I mean, Baptists do this brilliantly, but other traditions do the same thing. There are deacons that are identified as leaders in the church, and their responsibility is to take care of the needs of the members of the community. Now, needs can be different depending on where you are. For some, like in our tradition, deacons historically are one of two things. They could be pastoral care providers. Most commonly, they are responsible for outreach. That's the classic place of a deacon in our tradition, is they are the bridge from the church, which would mean the members of the community, to the world, identifying needs in the world. So there are, you know, we need to take care of people who are homeless in the community. We need to take care of people who are um, lonely and live by themselves in the community, people who may be, and on and on and on. They identify vulnerable populations, and they try to connect the church 
to care for those who are vulnerable. We see that that's the basic structure of what happens here in the beginning of chapter 6, is that these seven are identified to coordinate, quite literally, the daily distribution of food. Right? There are people who cannot feed themselves. And so these seven are lifted up as the ones who can coordinate the daily distribution of food. Let's read on chapter, I mean, verse 2. The twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. We're trying to figure out how to approach this particular passage. We're going to do so as Episcopalians first. When I was discerning my own vocation, I was raised up in a diocese that treated discerning vocations as something quite broad. People could come in and participate, and discerning vocation actually meant trying to help people discover their own spiritual gifts, right? We are, I think, familiar with the idea of spiritual gifts. I hope we are. If we're not, the quick of it is we are the body of Christ. Each one of us plays a role in the body. Some of us are hands, some ears, some feet, some heart, some mind, whatever that is. We all play our role. None of us do everything. And if we all can identify our giftedness, and commit to that, to using those gifts for the good of the community, then everything gets done. That's the ideal. Vocations have been built up to identify perhaps the macro needs in the body. And so in some places, like where I was in Atlanta, they really try to, try to treat discerning vocation as actually doing that. Are you a caregiver? Are you a teacher? Are you a liturgist? Are you a priest? Are you whatever that is? Where do you fit in these macro categories of vocations? In many dioceses, that's not how it's treated. Discerning vocation really means here, is, here are the hoops you have to jump through to convince people you should be ordained. That's really what it functions as. And people decide they're supposed to be ordained. They've heard the call. They know it's true. Now they've got to go through weeks and months of convincing other people that it's true. And that's too bad, because I think that's not what it should be. Okay, so back to, back to me. So when I was discerning the vocation, what I thought was very interesting is I can remember we would have these discussions around identity. I kept referring to priests as ministers. That was my own stuff I was raised in the Catholic Church, and I could not, at that point, consider myself ever being a priest because that meant a certain thing, and I didn't want to be that thing. And so the words mattered, and so I just used what I thought was the same word, minister, and I would say minister, and minister, and minister. And finally, one of the priests sitting in the room just blew up at me and said, I am not a minister. I am a priest. Ministry is not what I do. I care for the sacraments. That is what I do. 
ministry to other people is what others in the community do. And on the one hand, I don't like that. Except we kind of see the clear distinguishing of roles right now in this sixth chapter of Acts where the apostles are perhaps thoughtfully, I'm going to give them credit, we're going to say thoughtfully, are saying we're called to do a thing and if we don't do that thing it won't get done. But there are other very important things that need done too and we can't do those because we're doing the thing that we're called to. And so we have to identify other people who are called to those specific other ministries. Raise them up, bless them, consecrate them, but define the roles well. One person can't be everything. And so instead, here is a role, and there is a role, and there is a role, and all are important, and all are necessary, and yet no one can do all of them at the same time. That's perhaps, I think, organizationally sound. If we can separate out what we think ministry writ large should be and in a very, with an open heart, define roles well, that's actually good organization. And so as they raise up these seven leaders, what they're really beginning to do is establish different roles within a Christian community. The apostles are beginning to own what will ultimately be the priestly role. Now, oh, I, I'm, so, I'm so tempted. Um, what they say they do is they pray and they care for the word. So in essence, what that means is they soak themselves in prayer, which is everyone should be doing that, right? I mean, no matter what our functional role is, we should be centering ourselves prayer, in prayer. But that their functional role is around the word. So in essence, preaching, teaching. That's really what they're supposed to be doing. Caregiving is equally important, but a different role. And as we see in Acts, they'll develop more and more of those distinguished roles. It's an interesting thing to ponder what you think roles of ministry should be. Because I think one of the ways in which the Episcopal Church has suffered over the last couple generations is we've raised up really nice people to be priests. In general, most people will say, oh, they're so nice, they should be a priest. And what I think they're really saying is, they are such good caregivers, they should be ordained. And although having ordained people be caregivers, there's no problem with that. If everyone becomes a caregiver, then what ultimately happens is nobody makes any decisions because they're constantly worried about hurting someone's feelings. That ultimately begins to undermine the organizational heft of the church. And it doesn't mean it's not important, but that's one of the problems that we're in right now is that most of my colleagues are, their first priority is not ever offending anybody. 
which in essence means they're paralyzed to really make any decisions, which ultimately, if you don't make a decision, is making a decision. Um, but that's, that's something different. So, okay, that's my tangent. Sorry, we'll stop there. Before we move on to Stephen, any questions about general giftedness, gifts of the Spirit, the way that the church is being structured? Yes. Hmm. So the question is, if the Jewish community took care of, say, widows, would they take care of other vulnerable groups like orphans the same way? Most indication is no, unfortunately. Um, however, let's define what an orphan is at that time. An orphan would only be, bless you, an orphan would only be a child that is conceived and born improperly. So mistress, concubine, um, out of wedlock in some capacity, right? So orphans, if a parent were to die and a child was an orphan, that child would be cared for. So if, if everything was good and there was just a tragic accident and parents died and there were children left, 100%, they would be completely absorbed by their aunts, uncles, grandparents, whatever. No, no question. The orphans over here who were somehow conceived outside of the law wouldn't have been part of the community to be taken care of. Does that make sense? We may not like that opinion, and we shouldn't, by the way, like that opinion. That's how they would have been seen. So you almost have two categories. It's always two categories. When I say that within the Jewish tradition, they would take care of those who are vulnerable, they would take care of the Jews who were vulnerable, okay? This is not every person it doesn't mean there aren't nice people who would just randomly do stuff, certainly. But as a system, there are people who are their people, and then there are the others. Which is ultimately the big struggle of Acts. I mean, the big macro shift in Acts is that non-Jews can be part of this too. That's the big story here, right? I don't want to lose the forest for the trees. We're in the details right now, but the big, big shift is that everyone's welcome. Everybody in the pool, right? You like Jesus? Come on in. That is universally unprecedented. Because up to that point, your security, like your literal life, was at risk if you let strangers in. And so communities were highly homogenous for their own security. And, and come on, that's human, right? I mean, we, we're all in some way homogenous and feel a little safer that way. When we get into situations where people are not perhaps like us, anxiety can be a little higher, a general fear can be a little higher, and we can still not let that control us. But it happens. It's a natural human response. And so if we're not intentional about it, it makes perfect sense that we would unify with people who are like us. Security level is higher. 
And so the Jewish people, as part of the gospel story that offended people so much, is Jesus was touching and healing and teaching and eating with the people outside that group. So you might be thinking to yourself, well, wait, people, you know, Jesus or others are constantly walking, seem to be constantly walking by beggars sitting in a doorway or, you know, lame people sitting on mats and why aren't they being taken care of? They're not in the group. We're talking about people who are in and people who are out. This is not a priesthood of all. This is not, that's part of the inconvenience that I'm going to get to with Stephen. That's why I would argue the story of Stephen is as critical a pivot point in the identity of Christianity as anything because it changes the definition of who is your neighbor and how you care for people, perhaps more than anything else does. And we'll get there. Karen. Sure. So at the beginning, you hear Hellenists and Hebrews. That is, most scholars think, I mean, so, so Hellenists can be defined in a particular way, but most scholars think that in this passage, there, it's really about a Jew-Gentile distinction, that Hellenists functionally means the not-Jews. So you've got people coming into this community who are not, never have been Jewish. That's, when, we, when the Hellenists criticize the Hebrews, you're really seeing the Gentiles criticizing the Jews for not taking care of their people. Because when you walk into a group, you might say, like, if someone were to walk into this room, like, we're a bunch of white people, okay? Now, we may not necessarily come from the same social groups or neighborhoods or you name it, but if someone comes in who's really different than us, we kind of look the same. And so when the Gentiles walk in the door, they see Jews. Now, the Jews see many different groups, right? Someone may say Christians, but we see Baptists, Episcopalians, Catholics, Pentecostal, right? We, we in the Christian group, understand the differences. But people outside the Christian group just see Christians, right? It's like whenever you say things, people will ask me randomly things like, what do Muslims believe about that? Yo, there are so many different kinds of Muslims. Like, you can't say that. Just like, what do Christians believe about that? Can you say that? Like, no one can say that. But we know you can't say that. We are Christian. If you don't know that group, you don't see the distinctions within it. These Gentiles have walked into this community and see a whole bunch of Jews. But the Jews would likely have replied, well, that's not my Jew, right? I mean, my Jewish group is this, and that person's a different Jewish group. Now, she may be hungry, but she's not my people. The Gentiles are probably like, what? I mean, you're, you're all Jews, right? It's every time you take a step higher <laughs> from getting into the weeds, you see that people are actually a lot more alike than they are different. And you've heard me say before, you know, how many Episcopalians do you know who'd much rather 
hang out with non-Christians who share many of their beliefs, uh, kind of in a cultural sense, than Christians who handle snakes or speak in tongues, right? I mean, that, that seems so radically apart from our identity when you've got that nice, you know, that nice, someone said to me, that nice Hindu doctor that lives down the street from me, right? Okay, I mean, I, I think that you mean well when you say that. Um, there's, a, there's a way that we identify ourselves that if we're not careful and intentional can actually undermine what we might think or I hope would think would be the most critical part of our identity. We're supposed to be Christians first, except that most of us define ourselves by our culture first. And that's ultimately what I hope we're all working on, is we should be American Christians, not Christian Americans. We should be, and you can roll that out in any way you want, Christianity should be the core root of our identity, and everything else is built on top of it. Therefore, we never get backwards in what actually unifies us, and we don't focus on what divides us more than we should. All right, any other questions? Prayer is... I, I, I can answer you, because we, this is what we talked about last year. Um, so when it comes to prayer, what I, what I hope that you're in the middle of is a shift toward prayer not being in order to achieve a goal. So praying for the sake of getting what you want is not the best way to pray, except that's how most of us tacitly understand prayer. Right? I, I like to use the image, someone used it with me years ago, as God is a vending machine. Right? Most of us understand prayer as if we do it enough or in the right way or with the right words, then maybe we get the right thing out. Right? You put the right change in the vending machine, you get the thing you want out. Right? Prayer, in order to m get something you want, is not the best way to pray. The best way to pray is so that you will actually, actually center yourself on God's spirit. The difference is 180 degrees. Most people pray such that God will conform to our wants. Instead, we should flip that, and we should pray that we conform to God's will. Thy will be done on earth as in heaven, right? We say this, except the effect of that often doesn't sink in. And I get it because it makes sense. You know, you've got someone you love, someone you care about, even you. Something bad has happened, and you don't want it to happen. And so it's totally natural that you pray for that bad thing to not happen or to change or for someone to, you, you fill in the blank, right? 100% reasonable. And I want you to know that I want you to say those prayers if those are the prayers that make sense to you right now. Do it. It is better to pray and pray something that maybe isn't the highest form of prayer than to not pray at all. My example 
is every time I get on an airplane, I pray that God will not let this plane crash. I mean, I go through everyone on the plane and I pray for wisdom and skill and please and all the other stuff. I know that is not how prayer works. I pray it anyway because I really don't want to crash. Okay? So that is, nobody's perfect. And so pray your prayers. That is no problem. But I want to at least kind of push you to what I think is the highest form of prayer, which takes us and molds us around God, not the other way around. Do you think God can heal someone? I do. Anything impossible with God. Mm -hmm. That's what we should do here, right? No, this is exactly what we should be doing. I don't want you to settle on being the same person you were when we started this Bible study, including me. Every time I teach, I learn something. I mean, every time I preach, I hear something. And so we can all continue to be formed and transformed by God. Nothing's impossible for God. The point of the prayer is more for us than for God. It doesn't mean that makes sense today. I mean, I think, I think profound... When we run up against an idea, a Christian idea that is so counter-cultural and so counterintuitive, we can't just simply pivot. That's not how we're made. We have to live into it. And so what I would encourage you to do around something like prayer, don't stop, but is there a way you can slowly reform your prayers to acknowledge what I think is a deeper truth, and again, I'll use this, that stupid prayer I pray every time I get on a plane. What I do is I go through all these hoops to try and, fu- I mean, functionally, I'm not bargaining, but because I don't say things like, if I make it, I'm never going to drink again. I mean, it's not like I do anything like that, but it's, I do say those prayers in a way that I know is not really the best way to pray. But then the very end of the prayer is, but I trust you. Because I don't want to ever hang the purpose of prayer, the purpose of prayer on any tangible result I can see. It's not the best of it. Yes? Right, and 4.13 goes on, you know, everything's possible with God, right? Philippians is a good one. It's prayer is to give us peace. It's not to cause something to happen. And if, if, we, can just, if, if we can just get that, then I think prayer is always worth it. But if, you've been, if people have been praying for their whole life, thinking that they do it in order to 
affect a tangible shift in the world, then it's a difficult pivot that perhaps the prayer is mostly for you, the prayer, not in order to somehow get God's attention. And if we as the prayer are shaped toward God, then we ultimately are achieving more peace over time. And that peace, it's like forgiveness, right? One of the hardest things that we do as Christians or that we're called to do is forgive someone who's hurt us. But anytime I get the opportunity, I remind someone who's struggling with forgiveness that it has nothing to do with forgiving what the person did. Forgiveness is so you can have peace. We think that we have to excuse or condone or something the person who hurt us or the hurt that they caused. That's fine to do. But the real point of forgiveness is that we let it go and we achieve peace. And prayer is a very similar idea that our peace in that prayer is the highest purpose of it. Yes, that's fine. I would too. So let's, let's make a distinction between, I'm having, I approach this in a, in a way that it can be many things at different levels. So the example of my child is sick in the hospital and I'm praying that they get better. Prayer can function on many levels. And when I say the highest good or the highest purpose, it doesn't mean that it's the only. So I would absolutely pray that my child be healed. Here's the problem if that's the only way you pray. What happens if they die? Did God do that? Or did God not do that? If the only reason we prayed and the only way we understood the prayer was to get a tangible effect, then we're left with a really big problem. God either didn't answer our prayer and our child died, or God chose that our child would die. Both bad. That if we put ourselves on a path where the only end is something that is very problematic, then I want us to back up and say, you absolutely pray for your child to heal. Completely. You do so knowing that prayer at the highest form, in the highest good, is really for you to achieve the peace that, even in the face of death, God is at work in that. doesn't mean that the choice was made God didn't need another angel, right? That kind of BS that people say, that's awful. If someone told me that God needed another angel if my kid died, I would break their face. <laughs> so don't say stupid stuff like that, right? Instead, I do think that God is always able to redeem bad and make it good. And so... We can pray on multiple levels, but I want us to pray on multiple levels, not just one. So absolutely you pray for your spouse, your friend, your child, you, yourself. 
but I just want to make sure that you always, always, when you say those prayers, have in your mind that God not doing what we want does not mean that love isn't real and that God isn't at work redeeming all of this brokenness because that's still happening, even if it's not exactly the way we want it to be. So it's that classic let go and let God, right? I mean, we hear that sort of thing where I, I actually think that's a great way to can think of prayer because what, I think the, the biggest problem of prayer is hinging the prayer on the result, the perceived result. And so if you're giving this over, give it over. Like, tell God everything, right? I firmly believe God knows anyway, right? However, the function of praying is powerful for us, and so we should do it. But if we're, I think there are moments where we could be so frustrated, so hurt, so you name it, that we can no longer carry this ourselves, and we need God's help. And it's a brilliant way to use prayer, I think. It's that, you know, I hate it, but that stupid footprints thing is, is good. Remember footprints back in the 80s, right? I seem to think it was like in everyone's house, right? Why was there only one set of footprints? Well, that's when I carried you. Well, that's, you know, as cheesy as it is, that's pretty solid. I mean, I think that that's, if we, if our ultimate faith is not in the temporal and the tangible, but in the eternal, God does carry us, and we're never alone. And I think that's the good. That's the good. Yes, ma'am. Gratitude is a transformative feeling. Um, theological or not, I can remember as a as a teen. Remember when Oprah started talking about gratitude journals? Kind of. I guess that's what mid '90s ish. Um, I think that's a pretty powerful idea. I'd love to take the idea and make it Christian, um, not just human, but the idea of gratitude as a starting place is important. I just said on Sunday in the contemporary services, a big difference between Americans and other people who are living in the poorest areas of the world is that Americans expect life to be easy, and when it's not, we get angry and complain. Most people in the world expect life to be hard. And when life isn't hard, they're so grateful. Christianity, when, when Jesus says it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for the camel to go through the eye of the needle, that's what he's talking about. It's not about dollars. It's about expectation. We can, the more affluent we get, expect life goes our way. Life will be easy and entertaining and fulfilling. And when it isn't, we get mad. We are somehow slighted, like we deserve better. Christianity doesn't make sense if you've let the world become what defines you. But if it isn't what defines you, then blessings are gratitude, always. And we are grateful for anything, even if 
hard things happen, or when they do, it's not if, it's when they do, they don't define us. It's the blessings that we are grateful for that define us. Then Christianity makes sense. And, if, and that's a hard shift. If you didn't grow up with that, man, that's hard. But one way to do it, I think, is praying with gratitude. Name those things you are grateful for. And as you name those things, you begin focusing on the, grat- on the gratitude in your life. And the other things begin to carry less weight. They don't throw you off your game. They don't throw you off the rails. Little things that are important, but still not most important, stop defining your happiness. Again, happy is not the point, but it is the result of having a life focused on gratitude. That's right. Well, and I, I love what you just said. The eyes to see the unexpected spring. Because that's really, to me, how prayer forms us, is we begin, we are prepared then to see those unexpected blessings in the world. And rather than taking them for granted, we are grateful when we have those experiences. And that's, that's where prayer, when we try to conform ourselves to God, actually makes the biggest impact on us. Okay, I love this. I really do. And this is very important. We have three minutes um, to do Stephen. So let me just tee it up. So, <clears throat> so we're going to pivot. Let's keep going with that thread. It's a good thread. But I do want to at least tie off chapter six. What really, really impacts Stephen comes next chapter. All right? So we, we're not done with Stephen. But I do want to at least set up. Stephen is part of the seven— he quickly shifts out of the role of caregiving and into the role of teacher, preacher, leader. It happens fast, and he is very effective. And so if we look at verses 8— Okay, here. Let's take a quick look. Verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue stood up and argued with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. This is easily understood by us. Stephen's doing something that is different changing the status quo. The people who like the status quo get mad, and they start to undermine his work. What does that sound like? Everything everywhere, right? I mean, any one of us can identify with being the person who's trying to make a change in, in all good intention and being undermined. I think maybe not most often, But every one of us in here has found ourselves at least once being the people undermining. And we don't like that part of it, right? We like to say, like, gosh, I know just how Stephen feels. Well, we probably know just as much how the other people feel about Stephen, especially church, right? Church is the classic status quo. 
And so we all get that things matter to us. And these people who are undermining Stephen, I don't think are these evil people. They're just the people who like the way it is, right? It, that's all right. Except they've closed themselves off to the potential for God to still do new things. That's the problem. It's not that they're bad people. It's just that they like the way things are, and they like the way things are so much that they have now shut off God's ability to still reveal and change and shift the world. Stephen's a part of that shift, and they are aggressively working against him. What we will look at next week is when Stephen's arrested and goes in front of the council, he is just too too difficult for the council to deal with. And he will ultimately become, next week, the first Christian martyr. And he does so with a kind of beauty and calm that is why I think his story is so powerful for what the church becomes. And I'll close with the very last verse of chapter 6 after Stephen has been brought in front of the council, says, All who sat in the council looked intently at him, at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen is physically shifted because of his faith. And unfortunately, that's going to mean that he is too scary to those who like things the way they are. Quick reminder, in case you didn't have it on your calendar, tomorrow night's the Women of St. Michael Wine Pole, preparing for the parish party that is in February. And so if you can, they'd love to join for you to join us. We'll be there um, at the Shoebox House, and there's information on the poster as you go. Thank you all very much. See you next week.